Thing. Please be seated. The book of Numbers, chapter 20, is where we find ourselves this evening, Sunday night. If you're new with us here this, morning, uh, this evening, we make our way from Genesis to uh, Revelation. And we pick things up here in chapter 20, uh, verse 1, where we're told, Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin, in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh or Kadesh. And that kind of helps us get our bearings a little bit as we've been away from the book for uh, two or three weeks. And we find the children of Israel, they've been wandering in the wilderness uh, for a long period of time. And uh, as we're told right here, they come to this location, Kadesh, there in the first month. It's the first month of the 40th year. They're very, very close now to finishing their 40-year wandering in the wilderness and uh, coming to a staging area in Moab before they are going to cross over into the promised land, into Israel in the region of Jericho. It's interesting that where they are geographically is they are at uh, Kadesh there, and it is still uh, after the 40 years at the end of it, they find themselves in the very place where they failed and was the great cause for them not being able to enter into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea where the spies came back, brought the evil report, the people believed and rebelled against God and, and it resulted in that generation dying off except for two people and uh, the, new, the second generation was going to come into the land. And so after 38 years, we don't really know all of the places that they wandered during uh, the 38 to 40 years they were wandering in the wilderness. All we know is that at this point in time, they're back where they were 38 years earlier. No progress at, at all. And of course, that's where unbelief in the Word of God, unbelief in the promises of God, and unwillingness to obey God's call upon our lives, it results in a life of no progress. You look at a person one day and you run into them ten years later, twenty years later, still born again, still on their way to heaven, but they are no further along in obeying the Word of God, no further along in obeying God's calling upon their life or making a difference for the Lord than, than they were ten or twenty years earlier. And it's a terrible place to be. But that's how people end up there, and that's exactly where they are. But things are going to change for them now. We're told at this point in time, Miriam, who was Moses' sister, she died there, and she was uh, buried there in that place. We know that Moses is going to die in just uh, a few chapters as we get into uh, the book of Deuteronomy. He will also uh, die, and he's going to die at the age of 120 years old. And you remember Miriam, she goes way, way back to the book of Exodus, the early chapters, when Moses' mom put him in that little uh, reed ark and put tar on it and put him out into the Nile River with the alligators and all in the hopes that his life would be saved because the decree of uh, Pharaoh was that all Hebrew children were to be killed and thrown into the river. And of course, God just, uh, you know, providentially and sovereignly caused Moses' life to be spared and discovered by Pharaoh's daughter. And who was it that came up to Pharaoh's daughter, uh, knowing that she would be looking for a wet nurse as she took the lid off of the ark and saw this little baby boy crying? And uh, Miriam said, I'll go find uh, a wet nurse for uh, this little boy. She said, go ahead and do it. And she brought back Moses' mom, who then got paid for being a mom. It's a wonderful Mother's Day message, isn't it? Uh, so, but she was probably somewhere between 8 years old and 15 years old at, at that time, maybe 6 years old, we don't really know, but older than Moses. So she probably at the time that she dies, somewhere between about 125 and 135 years old. So she's been getting the seniors discount at Denny's for a long time. There's a lot of grace really in this. Uh, Miriam's one great failure in her life and in her ministry. And I mean, I, nobody serves the Lord that doesn't have a great failure, I think. And where you look and say, boy, I'd... Sure like to have that day over again and, and redo that. Where she led that kind of rebellion against Moses, 
um, with Aaron against Moses' authority and God smote her and made, a, made her a leper and made an example of her in, in that. But other than that, she was a great prophetess for the nation of, of Israel. When they came through the Red Sea, that great victory, when Pharaoh's army was swallowed up by the Red Sea, she led the women in kind of a prophetic celebration song of, of God's victory. So a very spiritual woman. Uh, she did falter in, at the one point in time, but uh, if he has, God has grace for us, he has grace uh, for for her, and so this loss is uh, probably a significant loss for Moses at this uh, point in time in his life. It's actually grace, though, toward her. God allows Miriam and allows Aaron to live all the way to the end of the forty years. So that generation is going to die off. God has decreed it. And, uh, and yet he allows her to live all the way until the end of that generation dying off before they enter into the promised land. Now, there was no water for the congregation. So they hit a, a place here now where their parents had hit this same kind of place earlier in, in uh, their wanderings. And they've got a place now where there's no water, which is a seri- pretty serious condition uh, down in the Sinai uh, wilderness of uh, of, of modern-day Israel, and, and, and also there's no water for the congregation. And so what did they do? They gathered together against Moses and Aaron. Same old story. What did they do? And the people contended with Moses. They spoke against him and said, If only we had died when our uh, brethren died before the Lord. You read that and you go, Wait a second. You whippersnappers. You never saw that stuff. What are you complaining about what happened with Korah and what happened back in your parents' generation? You didn't see it. Where'd you pick this whining up? Where kids pick their whining up and they're complaining from their parents. And so here is uh, the, the, they contend, if only we had died with our, our brethren core and all swallowed up by the earth, you know, like he was and, and, and all. Why have you brought up us, uh, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? Tremendous faith. Like God has protected them for 40 years. He's fed them for 40 years. Their shoes haven't worn out. Their moccasins, their sandals haven't worn out in 40 years. He said, I just did that. I wanted to keep you alive so I could, you know, kill you with thirst here right at the end. So say, like they haven't, they haven't learned a, a, a lot. I mean, that, that gene pool of Adam and Eve is rough. I'm glad we're a lot better than them. So they, they're looking here. No more faith in their parents. Just as much unbelief as their parents. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt like Moses did it? Like he could punch his way out of a wet paper bag. And he didn't do those, you know, plagues that got them out of Egypt. It was God that did it. So they got this revisionist history. Why, did you, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. It's no promised land. It's no land flowing with milk and honey. Nor is there any water to drink. And so this is the complaint that they bring against him. There's a funny thing um, uh, about God's people even. The, The mature way to handle this situation would have been given the history that they had with God, is Moses. We're in this pickle again. This isn't the first time we've seen this. We've been through this lots of times. Where we found ourselves in, in a deserted place, in a desert place, and we don't have any water. Now, not having water, that's a big deal. That's not just water, that's not just words on a page. They're in the, this is a big crisis that they're facing. They need water to satisfy their thirst. But the mature way to handle it would have been to go to Moses and say, Listen, we've been here before. We know God hasn't taken care of us all the way to this point, so we can die of thirst at at this point. And so God has led you in the past on what we're supposed to do here. Let's put a prayer meeting together and let's see how he's going to deliver us from this. That would be the mature way of, of handling it. 
That is, noticing the problem, but becoming a part of the solution. But they don't do that. They do the easiest thing to do in a difficult situation when God's people are faced by it. The easiest thing to do is to complain. Well, well, here we are again. I don't care how you say any complaining. It sounds like this. It's very nasally and irritating. Here we are again, Moses. I mean, you can't lead us anywhere except that we don't have water. And I mean, is this any way to run an airline? And I mean, are you kind of a CEO? Are you of God's people here? And, the, and, and, and whine about the whole thing. Anybody can do that. It doesn't require any maturity to do that. Spiritual maturity is measured in a person, Christian, when we find ourselves in this kind of a place and we recognize fully the greatness of the problem. But then we say, I'm not just going to do that, and I'm not going to give in to complaining, but I'm going to become a part of the solution. What do we need to do here between us and God to get through this? So often when a person is a brand new Christian, uh, their first consciousness that they have is of everything that's wrong. That's wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, this is wrong. And they think they're a gift to the body of Christ. So anybody can do that. But they're young, they're growing in their relationship with the Lord, so you change their diapers, you pat them on the backside, and say, keep on going. One day you'll recognize that that's no great gift to anyone, much less a child of God or the body of Christ. And one day you'll look at something and realize it's not good enough just to complain against it, but to become a part of the solution. And so they fail here. They should have known better than, than to give in to this kind of thing, let alone bring these kind of accusations against Moses and Aaron. So what did Moses and Aaron do? They went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. I mean, they just went right down and began to worship the Lord. And, and, and I think that they went down on their faces with an urgency, because here they are, they're back at Kadesh, where they had failed 38 years earlier because of unbelief. And Aaron and Moses have to be thinking, Moses has to be thinking, I'm 120 years old, I don't know if i got another 40 in me. To have this group, this generation, now falter in unbelief. And we go, we got to do this all over again. It's a very serious situation that's occurring here. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So they go to prayer. The first step in the answer to any kind of a problem is, is prayer. And the Lord answers the prayer, appears to them. And this is what the Lord spoke to Moses. He said, take the rod. This was the rod that, that budded, that had been taken from the twelve tribes. It was Aaron's rod that had been put before the Ark of the Covenant. And it sprouted and it budded and it had almonds and, and flowers and all. Take that that very rod, and you and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Okay, check. Okay, got the rod. Check. Okay, got to gather the congregation. Number three, speak and circle that word at least in your mind. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. And thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and to their uh, animals. And so, Moses has received the instructions here, and they took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded them. Check, we're on script. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. Check, we're on script. And then Moses said to the people, Hear now, you rebels. Okay, Houston, we got a problem. We are off script now at this particular point in in, uh, in time. So here he is. He's, uh, Moses starts to call the people uh, rebels here. And uh, even though it was true of them, it wasn't the time or the place to take care of this uh, in, in, in their lives. And basically, he snaps at this point. And he says, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And he's talking about him and Aaron. And uh, we'll see later that Aaron was in, in uh, alliance with Moses on this, on this whole thing that is going to happen because both of them are not going to get into the promised land because of this failure here. 
And, and so uh, the, here he, he starts yelling at them and he loses control and, uh, and he, he brings it, the intimation that he has the ability to bring water out of the rock and to supply the needs uh, of the congregation. And one of the things, you know, the Bible uh, uh, talks about, James does, talks about us, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. One of the things that happens is once we get angry and Moses is angry here is it starts verbally and if we don't control ourselves verbally pretty soon it starts to escalate and then pretty soon it's physical and that's what happens to him so he verbally begins to uh, rail upon them and then we're told in verse 11 Moses lifted his hand and he struck the rock twice with his rod Mm-mm. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals uh, drank. Now, Moses had run into this whole event of the people complaining concerning water 40 years earlier with their parents uh, in, in, uh, at Meribah. And there the Lord had spoken to Moses and said, Now listen, I want you to go out in front of the congregation, and I want you to strike the rock, and when you strike the rock water will come forth. And so that's exactly what he did back there in Exodus chapter 17. Here God is very, very clear with them. I don't want you to strike the rock. This time I want you to go out and I want you to speak to the rock for water to come forward. So he disobeys God in his anger in multiple ways here as, as a leader. Now God is very, very gracious in, in all of this, water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Now, you would think that God would be as upset with these people as Moses was. God's kind of funny. And, and you have, we have to be careful as Christians, and we have to be careful as leaders. I'm going to talk about Moses as a leader here. But the fact of the matter is it applies to all of us as Christians because all of us as Christians are leaders in this world. We do not follow in this world. We are the head, we are not the tail. So whether that is in a marriage, whether that is in a home, whether that is in a workplace, even if I don't have a title that gives me authority over other people, once people know that we are Christians, they are watching our lives and they are expecting us, they are expecting to see godliness in, in our lives. And, and so, God, you, you would look at this and think, boy, God has got to be just as upset with them as as Moses is, and he's going to wink at this and everything's going to be okay. But at the moment, God isn't upset with them. God knows stuff about people that we don't know. We just assume so often that because I am angry, he must be angry. And boy, if I can see this, he must see a hundred times more than this, and he must really be furious, and thus this is righteous anger. And in the situation... He may not be angry at all. Now, he's going to be angry about their their complaining in just a little bit in in the next chapter. But he's not upset here. And it's tough to figure things out sometimes with God. Because he looks at things and says, you know, you're looking at it this way, but I'm not really upset with them because I know these things about where they are right now. Or, I am upset with them, but I'm, I'm taking care of a bigger picture here than you understand. And, and so getting in the flesh is not what I want you to do in, in the situation. And so even though Moses misrepresents God here, God um, takes and graciously brings forth the water that the people want. And it's funny how God will sometimes uh, overrule the misrepresentation of his people or even of leaders and still causes water to pour forth. I remember it's about um, 28 years ago in Napa talking with a man and uh, his wife was a Christian and he was not. And he had no interest in becoming a Christian. But for some reason on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, you know, to please his wife for whatever reason, they were having a revival at the church, and so he said he would go. And it was a, a very wild Pentecostal church, but uh, he went. 
And the preacher is up there preaching and he hits kind of a high point in his sermon and everything and he feels the electricity in the room and he shouted out to everybody in the room, let's dance. And so everybody gets up out of their seats and they begin to dance in the aisles. And I don't know if you've seen some Pentecostal dancing, but boy, they can shake a leg in the aisle. I mean, it's really something to see. There's a whole move and a whole deal to it and, and stuff. And all that stuff is going on, and he is freaking out. This is the one thing he did not want to have happen. That's why he didn't want to go to the church. The guy comes, the, the pastor comes down from the, the pulpit area, makes his way down the hallway or the aisleway, and he's dancing like everybody else. He comes to the guy. The guy's trying to get out of the room. And the, guy, the, the, the preacher comes to him, grabs the guy, and proceeds to prophesy and give word of knowledge to, to him concerning his life. And a heart problem that he had right now and that he needed to give that attention and this and this and this and this. And the guy then turned from him like he had said nothing, went on dancing and made his way down the aisle. Well, the guy took it, the, took the information and seriously. And he went to, to the doctor and I forget what, but he's like clogged up in every way in his heart. And ended up having a, a whole series of bypasses, and it saved his life. So crazy, misrepresenting God's scene. But God can break through that kind of stuff. Because he loves individual people, and he knows how to break through in his grace to take care of, of his people. God is funny. He is, there's no figuring him out. And... Uh, Content, sufficient for us to know. We just need to obey what he tells us to do, and then we'll be in line with what it is that he's he's trying to do here. So Moses, he strikes that rock a second time instead of instead of speaking to it, and uh, struck it like he struck it 40 years uh, earlier. Now, the following all of of this, then the Lord spoke to Moses, Moses and Aaron. They got to say what they wanted to say. And, and Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, and it really is that kind of, uh, <clears throat> uh, Moses, can you come over here by the woodshed? We've got some things to talk about in terms of what you just did in my name out there. And he spoke to Moses, and it's interesting to note to Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, you misrepresented me in front of them. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Wow. You know what he's been through? For 80 years? In the hope that one day he would lead them into the promised land. And God says, because of what you just did there, is my representative, you will not bring them in. And this, we're told, was the water of Meribah, which means contention, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now, the offense here that God had against Moses was because there in verse 12, you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children. And God's complaint against Moses was threefold. Number one, Moses, you deliberately disobeyed what I told you to do there. Second, Moses had misrepresented the Lord before the people. He had misrepresented God as being angry with them when God was not angry with them. And, and the Lord rightly realized that the people would correctly assume that since Moses was angry with us, then God must be angry with us too. And God said, you didn't hallow me. In other words, you didn't represent me as a holy God. You represented me as you. You represented me as carnal and as temperamental and, and angry as you are. And then third, in declaring that must we bring water for you out of this rock, and, and when the water did come out of the rock, 
it appeared then that it was Moses and Aaron's doing in bringing that water forth uh, from the rock. And so the glory that God intended for himself in this, this miracle, Moses had inadvertently, and I don't think he intended it, but he had done it nonetheless, took it to himself. And the Bible says the Lord won't share his glory with, with anyone. Additionally, and maybe most significantly, and here's this whole thing where we just have to learn to obey what God tells us to do in a situation, no matter what it seems like to us is right or wrong or he should be doing or shouldn't be doing because the big picture that God was working on in this this scene in in the book of Numbers was a picture that Moses marred. Moses marred one of the greatest Old Testament pictures or shadows that God intended for his people concerning Jesus here. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that the rock was a type or a picture of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And all drank of the same drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Moses was to strike the rock 40 years earlier, but this time he was to speak to the rock. Why? Because Jesus was smitten once upon the cross for our sins. And now when we have need from Him or need from our Heavenly Father through Him, there is no need for Him to be smitten again, but we can go to Him and talk to Him. That's what God wanted to have pictured out of this scene. And Moses' anger marred the imagery. And the, and, and the application is very, very broad in being able to speak to Jesus about whatever need we have in our life. But the typology is very strong toward the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the uh, work of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit is often likened unto water. And the Bible says that any time we as Christians need to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit so that he will come forth from our innermost being as a torrent of living water. There's no need for Jesus to be crucified again for that to happen. We just need to come to him and ask him, talk to him for it, and, and it will become our, our immediate portion. And so Moses, he messed things up by, by doing that. And the consequences is we saw God said, you're not going to bring them into the promised land. I don't know about anybody else, but because for better or for worse, God has called me to be a leader in the body of Christ, this passage always just stops me. Let's look at it and think, 80 years, what that guy has been through And then here he does this, one great failure in his life, and and he's out. And I never look at Moses and think, well, you know, he was a a terrible leader or, um, you know, some kind of a heavy-handed, abusive leader or that he has sinned uh, even remotely nearly as much as I have, even in the area of anger on things. But I think that the reason why God was so... Uh, strong in the consequences that he laid on Moses here was in order to drive home the point to knuckleheads like me and others in this room, be they male or female, and in the body of Christ, to drive home unmistakably the seriousness of getting angry and misrepresenting the Lord before his people. Representing God is angry with his people when he is not angry uh, with his People. Now, the Lord loves Moses, and, uh, Mo- and God is, because he loves Moses the way that he does, they had an intimacy of relationship that nobody had in that time in human history. God is later, we'll see in Deuteronomy, going to take Moses up on Mount Pisgah and is going to allow him to view the whole promised land. He can't walk into it. He said, I'm going to let you see where Joshua is going to take them in. Except when we fast forward into the New Testament, we find out that Moses ultimately did go into the promised land with the greatest tour guide, Jewish tour guide you could ever have, Jesus himself. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, John, Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
who was there with Jesus but Elijah and Moses. And Moses wasn't steamed over it or anything. Boy, I'll tell you, finally, I get it. You know, nothing like that. And all. But the Lord loved him, said, all right, I know I'm tr- making your life like a ministry lesson for generations of people that are going to follow you. But when you do come in, you'll come in with me. And, and it'll be face to face with me. God has uh, beautiful grace, beautiful ways to encourage us. I want to just go through a, a couple of points here about what this whole incident with Moses uh, teaches us. Number one, it teaches us related to abusive leadership. Now, Moses was not an abusive leader. He was not at all. But it still teaches us about abusive leadership. Back in chapter 16, you remember God really lowered the boom on Korah and on others who were kind of uh, like the lay people, if you'll excuse the term, uh, for their rebellion against God-given authority to the leaders. And God was very strong with them. But here God also deals with the other side of the coin when he shows his great, great displeasure with the abuse of God-given authority on the part of leaders. And additionally, I think we learn that no leader among God's people is ever free, as we look at Moses, to use their God-given authority to lash out in anger at God's people. I think the second thing that it teaches us, and this is an important ministry lesson for all of us, and Jesus put it this way, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. God had given Moses a lot. Moses had a lot of revelation, a lot of intimacy with God. He had a lot of privilege from God. And a lot of responsibility comes with that privilege. And, uh, and so leaders are going to be held to a higher standard. And uh, Moses was held to a higher standard as a result of being a leader. I think it also teaches us uh, about the danger that carnal anger is to representing uh, the Lord. As a leader in, in the body of Christ, and sometimes as a leader even in a home or what, whatever it might be, you're just going to run into a lot of things that can make you angry. They can really, really make you angry. But it is never an excuse to fly off into uh, carnal anger in, in lashing out at, at other people. It also teaches us, I think, about the importance of strict obedience to God's word in the life of a servant and certainly in the life uh, of, of a leader, that there is never a legitimate excuse for willful disobedience against God's commands. Moses violated God's commandments here. Even a Moses is held accountable for his willful disobedience, his anger, angry disobedience against uh, God's word. I have found that the longer I'm a pastor and the longer that I walk with the Lord, and it might just be because my mind is failing me over time, but I have found that I have to stop myself more than ever in individual circumstances in life and ask myself, what does the Bible say that I'm supposed to do here? I go slower than ever. I have not arrived, so I'm not trying to put it that way. But slower than ever and more determined to say, what does God's word say to do in this situation? and then to try to uh, obey that. It also teaches us that when God uses us, we must not touch His glory. He won't share it with anyone. If He was going to share it with anyone, He'd share it with Moses. But He didn't share it with, with Moses. It also teaches us that we need to be circumspect in our areas of our Christian life that are our strength. The interesting thing is that Moses failed in the area of his strength. We've been told earlier in, in the passage that he was the meekest man in the whole world at that time. And yet he failed in the area of anger. Oswald Chambers said that we need to be on guard uh, concerning uh, unguarded strengths. There are those areas that we look at in our lives where we say, There's, this is door number one, door number two, door number three. These are the sins or the bondages that will be you know, given a chance would be the strongest and most likely to take me out. Got to keep your eye on those things. 
be circumspect concerning those things, but still never take our eyes off of the other areas of our life, the things that where we are kind of naturally uh, you know, in line with God's Word, because if those things get messed up, they can take us out uh, just as, as easily. So the importance of it. And again, I think the severity of, of the judgment against Moses, not because he was a greater sinner, but to drive home a very important lesson that has now been uh, conforming God's people for thousands of years as they read the Bible and, and the importance of properly representing the Lord, no matter how provoking people might be uh, in, in those situations. I think it, it is very important to respect Moses here, and I respect him for the fact that when he heard this from God, now put yourself in Moses' shoes, when he heard this from God, imagine how his heart must have sunk. I don't know. How, how, bring up ten of the most articulate men and women in human history to try and explain the disappointment that must have occurred in his heart upon hearing those words from the Lord. But you know what he did? He didn't quit God's calling. He didn't quit the ministry. He didn't say, well, if I can't take them all the way in, then count me out at this point. He faithfully continued to serve the Lord all the way to the end. And I want to say also that very, very often in the body of Christ there are situations where there'll be this kind of a, you know, kind of a, a big graphic kind of sin or failure or something like that where there's a disappointment in how someone has conducted themselves in, in a particular situation. But whenever I see a person take and uh, listen to what God has to say to them following that failure and they pull up, pull up their boots by the bootstraps and they continue on walking with God and serving the Lord and, and, and continue forward in it. I may never say anything to that person, probably should, and those kind of persons, but I always look at them and I say, Lord, I respect them so much. The easiest thing for them to do would be to just run, quit, check out, Go find some kind of an isolated place in life to live out the rest of their days. But they continue to stay in contact with the body of Christ and to serve the Lord. And Moses did it, and people do it today. And, it's, and there's much to respect in that kind of, uh, of person. Verse 14. Now Moses then sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom and said, Thus says your brother Israel... You know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. So they're going to make their way now from Kadesh and they're going to make their way to Moab where they're going to enter into the promised land. And the easiest way to make their way there would have been through the land of Edom. And Moses sends a message to the leaders of, of Edom and, and he's given them kind of a history lesson of, you know what we've been doing for 400 years and how we were in Egypt and all. And, but he introduces this message to the king of Edom by reminding him that, they are, that Israel is their brother. The Edomites and Israel were blood relatives. They were both descendants of Abraham and Isaac. But Isaac had two sons, one by the name of Esau and one by the name of Jacob. And the children of Israel came through the lineage of Jacob and the Edomites came through Esau. So they are blood relatives. So he's just kind of saying, remember we're blood relatives, we come from the same patriarchs, it sure would be nice to pass through your land, you know. We've had a pretty rough go of it for several hundred years, and a little grace would sure be good, especially from our family. When we cried out, verse 16, to the Lord, he heard our voice, and he sent the angel, brought us up out of Egypt, and now here we are at Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. And then here's the request. Please let us pass through your country. 
We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink water from wells. We will go along the king's highway. We won't turn aside to the right hand or to the left till we have passed through your territory. Just let us pass through. We won't do any harm to you. We won't drink any of your water, eat any of your food. We just want to walk through and, and take the, the shortest path. And then Edom, here's the response, said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with a sword. So he denies them with a threat of violence. And so the children of Israel said to him, We will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot. Nothing more. So maybe you caught him in a bad mood. He just asks again, Moses, for the right to pass through the land. And the king of Edom said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. And so this, this uh, strong show of force in, uh, in denying him. And thus Mo, uh, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. And so the children of Israel turned away from him. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation, journeyed from uh, Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. This would have been a tremendous discouragement to the people. Now, all they want to do is just cut through that land. And they've been out in that desert for 40 years. We're talking about two to three million people. We're talking about three or four San Franciscos. And it's hot, and it's dry, and it's a wilderness, and that, sure, that shortcut sure would have been nice. And the Edomites rise up, and they say, nope, you're not going to be able to do that. And a show of force against them uh, making progress in, in God's call upon them as, as a people. Now, again, the Edomites were descendants of Esau, and Esau was the one, you might remember, who sold his birthright for a bowl of red, for a bowl of stew. <laughs> he wanted the blessing of being the oldest son, but he didn't want the birthright, the spiritual responsibility of it. And he is a picture in the scripture of the kind of person, uh, the kind of Christian who elevates his carnal appetites, uh, fleshly appetites above the call of God upon his life, the purposes of God through his life. And so he's, he is likened unto a carnal man, a fleshly dominated man. So here you have a child of God in terms of the imagery of it, who's trying to make their way uh, to, uh, to the promised land. You've got a Christian, in other words, who's trying to grow in their life with Christ. They're trying to fulfill God's call upon uh, their lives. They're desiring to fulfill every promise that God has for them in the Word. They're making progress. They're moving forward. And as they're doing that, then all of a sudden they run into a distant relative who's not interested in cooperating. And when we become Christians, God's Holy Spirit comes into our lives. He gives us the power and the will to live for God. But it isn't long before we realize there's kind of a distant second cousin known as the flesh that is continuing to live inside of us who's not interested in cooperating with God's new plan for our life. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, thought I was alone. But the flesh wars against the Spirit is not interested in having us move forward. And that's what the picture is of the Edomites. The flesh will never make it easy on our inner man to possess the life that Christ has for us and the promises that are ours in Christ. He will always be uncooperative. But one day he will be done away with. There will be no more battle in, in, with him. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron on Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. So God now speaks to Moses and forewarns him of, of the uh, soon death of, of uh, Aaron. And notice he's going to be gathered to his people. There's no reincarnation. There's no soul sleep. When he dies, he will be gathered together with 
the righteous. For he shall not enter in, uh, into the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And here's why. Because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. And the idea is that both of them were in on, on that rebellion. So don't look at Aaron and say, wow, he's sure bearing a heavy consequence of what Moses did. They were both responsible for what happened there. And take Aaron and Eleazar, his son, and bring them up to Mount um, and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son for Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there and so Moses did just as the Lord commanded they went up on Mount Hor again in the sight of all of the congregation this was to be done publicly before all of God's people and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments I mean imagine watching this uh, there's a changing of the guard here and, and he put those all of those high priestly garments then on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there on the top of the mountain and then Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain and when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead all the house of Israel mourned for Aaron 30 days and so the the big picture of what's going on here and the reason that God wanted the whole congregation to witness this transfer of power from or authority from Aaron to Eliezer was that they would have um, firmly kind of placed in their mind that even though men die, even though God's people die, no matter how great those people are, the work of God always moves on. And I think that that's a very important thing. I, I look at, um, you know, and I don't want to use names or anything, but, you, you know, men and women that God has used so greatly, and they die, they go to be with the Lord, and such a gigantic loss to us, and yet God raises up the next person now to take their place, and the work always moves forward. God's work is always greater than any man or woman, always greater than even his people, and he makes sure that it moves forward. Now, Aaron has a few blessings here related to his life. It's, it's tough that he's not going to get to go into the promised land, but think about, I don't think he's in a place of, boy, was I ripped off walking with God all these years, did all of this, and then I get to the promised land and I can't walk in. No way. Think about what Aaron had seen in serving the Lord. Think about the meaning and purpose his walk in ministry to the Lord was to him. To see those plagues, to see that Red Sea parted, to be a part of God's work in human history, to see his son continue in the things of the Lord and to take his place in the work of the Lord. Now Aaron's going to go and be gathered to his people as a man who considers himself very rich for having uh, known God. Now the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7 uses this particular passage to remind us of the superiority of Jesus as the high priest in comparison to Aaron and, and the priests that were of his lineage. And the Bible speaks of our great high priest Jesus and his superiority, and he is superior in every way, but in one way that he is uh, superior as it relates to the passage is he never dies. He never dies. And the writer of the book of Hebrews said, He ever lives to make intercession for us. There is no transition, there is no gap, there is no movement. He is our high priest, and that never changes, and he never stops praying uh, for us. And so, the period of mourning, we're told there in verse 29, a period of 30 days and uh, normal period uh, of mourning in a situation like that uh, would have been seven days, but because of his, his prominence there in, in, in the history of the nation and just out of respect for him, they mourn for 30 days. Isn't it funny how people show you honor and respect after you're dead? He probably could have, I mean, if he could have come back, he would have said, you know, a little less whining would have been nice. Now you show me respect and you mourn for 30 days, but, you know, a little less sniveling would have been nice along the way. I'm not speaking to you. 
in any way. So don't get, sit back in your chairs. But it is uh, funny how, how it works. We're going to move a little, uh, just a little ways into uh, chapter 21 because there's a lot of easy places to break off um, here. And the king of Arad... Uh, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south heard that Israel was coming on the road uh, to Atharim. And when he fought against Israel and took, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And so uh, here they're making their way now around Edom. They come now to this king who is a Canaanite king outside of Canaan. The Canaanites were kind of everywhere there at that time. And he doesn't even wait for Moses to ask whether he can cut through the land or anything. He, with just a, an unprovoked attack, uh, fought against Israel and took them prisoners. Now, this shows us when God later, and we'll go into it in more depth when we get there, but when God calls for the utter destruction of the nations and the peoples that possess the promised land uh, by the children of Israel when they went in, God knew what nobody else knew. And that is that with the Canaanites and where they were in terms of their own depravity and wickedness and, and uh, immorality in every kind of way, that for those people, their hatred against the children of Israel, against the God of the children of Israel and, and all was so great that it was only going to be the survival of one or the other. And so here are the colors of the Canaanites, their attitude uh, uh, for, uh, against God's people and the children of Israel, is, it, it doesn't even need to be poked at a little bit to have it come forth. Unprovoked, they, they attack God's people and God's plan attached with God's people. By the way, the stakes are very high and attacked them and took some of them prisoners. And so Israel made a vow to the Lord. They said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And uh, so what uh, Moses is saying here is, if you will allow us to defeat them, uh, the, the Hebrew word that he uses here is, we will leave the spoil of the land to you, God. Uh, that will be an offering to you. In other words, what he's communicating is this. God, if you will give us a victory over them, we don't want a victory over them for their stuff. We want a victory over them for our own self-preservation and protection. And because that is our motive, you can have whatever they want. And so that's the thing that they ask for. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. It's nice to know God listens to our prayers. And he delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And so the name of the place was called Hormah which means destruction. And then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go down to the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. So now they're continuing their journey. It's a hard journey. It's a wilderness journey. A lot of people, and they allow their difficulty to translate then into complaining. And we must never allow even hard circumstances to translate into complaining against God or against our circumstances because God's doing a really big thing, a really important spiritual thing through our lives. But they fall into complaining again, and this time uh, God is not going to be as gracious as he was earlier with it. He's going to communicate to them in no uncertain terms that he doesn't like complaining in them any more than he liked complaining in their parents. But we'll get into that next week. The worship team would come up. We'd love to be led in worship just a little bit before we